You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Uh, good morning. My name is David. I'm pastor for Creative Arts here at Grace Community Church. And as Neil mentioned in prayer, uh, our lead pastor, Brad, is coming back from a conference. And so I get to uh, the privilege of filling in. And it has been quite a week. So I've known for a while about this, but I have family in town from out of the country. So I actually wrote my sermon like a week and a half ago so I could be fully present with my family. But God providentially <laughs> set that up for me because for the first time in my 17 years on staff, we had two funerals in one week, and very, very deeply meaningful ones. So Jim Acock was a pastor to pastors, and he was a constant encouragement to me. And Joy, I'm so glad you're here. We love you so much, um, and I will miss seeing Jim. Uh, when I scan the congregation as I'm leading through songs, uh, Jim would constantly demonstrate what it is for a church to be intergenerational. So he was 96. And so I know he didn't love the drums or the electric guitars that we would play, but he would sing because he loved Jesus more than he loved his preferences. And I love Jim for that. And then Jack Lucas, who passed away on Monday night, was another constant encouragement to me and our pastoral staff. He was quiet and unassuming, but had a rock-solid faith in God's love for us in Jesus. And both of these men will be deeply missed. And similarly, when I'm scanning and I don't see Jack in his space, uh, that'll be hard for me over the months to come. So in addition to that, my wife had her white coat ceremony to celebrate starting PA school at Campbell. Um, and then we had the weekend worship academy for student ministry musicians. It was yesterday, all day, and then finishes today after church. Uh, and so it's been a very full week for my family and for the Lee family, because Ricky uh, helped lead both of the funerals, and, and April helped coach piano students yesterday. Uh, so bear with us if our energy isn't as full as normal. But if you look on the website or the podcast, You'll see there's a category of sermons called standalone sermons. These are sermons that aren't part of a series. Uh, instead, they needed a category, though, because we've got to organize it all. So we call them standalone. Uh, the sermon for this morning is not exactly a standalone, however. I'd like to call it a cold open. So how many of you have seen at least one episode of The Office? And keep your hand up. Okay, how many of you have seen at least one episode of The Chosen? Okay, that should cover everybody. There's a few hands that aren't up. So if your hand isn't up, I recommend that you watch The Chosen. And if you like feeling awkward while watching a comedy, then watch The Office. Um, but both of these shows start with a cold open sequence. So this is the sequence that begins the show, but before the title card or the credits or the theme song have played, right? So if you're watching non-streaming TV, uh, cable, then right after the commercials end and the show begins, but before the credits. So it's also how Saturday Night Live begins uh, with a sketch that ends in live from New York. But that on SNL, like the sketch has nothing to do with the rest of the show. Um, in the office, usually the cold open was also just unrelated 
It was some shenanigans, like the best short gags of the series, like the pranks that Jim would play on Dwight. And I, I may or may not be planning some of those for Kyler's nice, clean office. I'll just have to wait and see. He's the new guy. Uh, in The Chosen, we get a very interesting cold open that is always related to the rest of the episode. So the cold open is always related to the rest of the episode, but it's not super obvious. Uh, for example, in one episode of The Chosen, you meet John in the future, but he he's, looks older. He's calling in various disciples who we've seen in the show, but they ha- all have longer beards or gray added or whatever, and they all look a little older, and you realize that John is finishing his gospel account, and he's asking a final few questions for those who were there for certain things. And then another cold open, uh, we see King David, and it's this one where he's, uh, Asaph is debuting a psalm for King David. Uh, it's very interesting to me because it's a psalm thing, right? But then later in the episode, Jesus quotes from that psalm. And so it's not just this passing moment in the teaching of Jesus, but rather it becomes this aha moment in the narrative of that episode. So I'm not going to claim that today's sermon is going to give you an aha moment. That's more of the work of the Holy Spirit anyways. But I do hope that this morning is a cold open of sorts for our series in Daniel that will start in just four weeks. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. In an episode of The Chosen called Invitations, there's a really great cold open. So you hear a hammer banging, and it pans back to a tent, and you see a man working on a pole with some sort of sculpture around the pole. And if you've seen this episode or you know at all where I'm going with this, then you know that it's Moses working on a pole with a brass serpent wrapped around it. And then Joshua comes in and he and Moses have this conversation about the fact that God said to do this really strange thing and that anyone who looks at the serpent will live. So later in the episode of The Chosen, after the title credits happen, and you, you see the, the, the logo, then Jesus is later meeting with Nicodemus. And Jesus quotes this story directly when sharing with Nicodemus about why he's doing what he's doing and teaching the things he's teaching. So Nicodemus is scandalized, yet intrigued by the person and work and teachings of Jesus. So they're having this conversation in the middle of the night so that folks won't necessarily see this esteemed rabbi or teacher, Nicodemus, meeting with this homeless, wandering teacher and upstart. And rumor has it, this guy's from Nazareth. And the running joke, which is actually annoying to me in the show, is a quote from the scriptures that, can anything good come from Nazareth? They say it way too often. Uh, But can anything good come from Andrew? Answer, yes, sunny skies. But I digress. Nicodemus is meeting with Jesus at night right here in John 3. So turn there, if you will, in your Bible, or swipe there, as it were, and keep your finger there. I'm going to read 21 verses, so you may remain seated uh, instead of standing as we read the word, because it's a little longer than usual. This is from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? <laughs> truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. So thanks be to God. So here in this very pivotal conversation, which includes the most famous verse of all scripture, arguably, right? We find the son of man title. And we find the son of God title. And they're both used by Jesus to describe himself. This is not to be taken lightly. This isn't just some convenient phrasing to show that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, though it is certainly no less than that, but it's way, way more. So what exactly does Jesus mean by son of man? Here are the key verses in chapter three, where you'll leave a finger, as it were. 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in these two verses, Jesus is throwing out some deep cuts from the Tanakh. That's the acronym for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So more specifically, he's dropping a phrase from the prophets and a phrase from the law, and he totally expects Nicodemus to catch these references. So I'll come back to these two references after we consider this one phrase, though, son of man, a little bit more. Son of man, as with all phrases made of words that people use, has a range of meaning. Phrases consist of words, and words have a usage, which is not always the same as their definition, right? For example, dope, which wit referred to me earlier this morning already, so I'm glad for that example. When I was growing up, dope was one of the main words to describe something you're not supposed to smoke, or it was an unintelligent person. 
usage of the word dope has now added the possible range of meaning that something is interesting or great. This sermon is dope. The definition doesn't necessarily help me know the meaning, right? It's usage shapes the range of meaning for a word. I almost said that dope has a range of meaning that includes the definition that something's cool. And then I'd be using another word outside of its definition, which is so confusing. So if words have a range of meaning and phrases consist of several words, then phrases could have a very wide range of possible meanings. So how do we even know what's going on? To narrow it down, we look at context and intent. What is the context for the phrase? And what does the speaker or author intend? When I say, isn't that cool? I don't intend for you to think that like my guitar is frozen, but I intend for you to think that my guitar is a nice guitar or that the chord I played sounded nice. Son of man could simply mean a child. Son of man could mean a member of the human race. Son of man could refer to the contrast between a son of angels or even a son of God and son of man. Son of man as a phrase could also be an idiom or a phrase that means something more full and complex than the words imply. An idiom is a phrase that means something more full and complex than the mere words imply. Bless his heart. Is a southern idiom. Right, it, Its meaning is way more full and complex, hiding behind the smile of pity from the speaker usually than those three words would indicate. So son of man may be an idiom that has a lot of doctrinal baggage attached. And as you might guess, that's what I've concluded. So the phrase son of man occurs 194 times in the Bible. 107 of those are in the Old Testament and 87 in the New Testament. Almost all of those are in the Gospels. So that's not a small amount of times for a phrase, but it's not seen as often as the titles Christ or Lord. Christ is used 534 times to refer to Jesus, and Lord is used over 6,000 times. So interestingly, the title Son of God only appears 44 times. So in the First Testament, or the Old Testament, the vast majority of those 107 uses are in the book of Ezekiel, a prophet who had a very eclectic way of proclaiming his prophecies. If you don't know what I mean, you probably haven't been doing the annual, you know, one-year reading of the Bible. Because when you go through Ezekiel, which you would have to if you're doing that, it's weird. Often, God would ask Ezekiel to do something as a visual representation of the prophecy he then proclaimed. So just read some of the things Ezekiel had to do. Uh, so God speaks to Ezekiel as son of man in most of the direct addresses in the book. So that accounts for actually 93 of those 107 times when God speaks to Ezekiel and says, son of man, do this. Son of man, lay on your side for this many days. Uh, I'm telling you, you need to read it. it. It then shows up in Psalms and in Job a couple times. And then we find it in the unique book of Daniel, which will be our next big sermon series. So the phrase son of man happens twice in Daniel, and both times. It is extremely significant. In Ezekiel, it's sort of just a title for the prophet, like an address for him. In the Psalms and Job, 
the uses are more the common understanding, the definitional, definitional use of the phrase, a member of the human race. But here in Daniel, specifically chapter 7, Daniel's having this powerfully specific dream about nations and events, both immediate and in the future. And the portions that are narrative in the book are, uh, or the story context, they're written in paragraph form. And then the portions that are dreams are recorded like poetry. So here's from Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So perhaps you recognize some of this language from other places that it occurs in Scripture, like in Revelation and the New Testament. This is a divine and human description, and it's not the only time something like this happens in Daniel. But listen, in the Old Testament, God had revealed himself as one God above all, the only creator distinct from his creation. Divinity, humanity don't mix in the Old Testament. So I imagine that many a rabbi, when they're teaching through the Bible, like we do, you know, preaching all the way through a book, and they would get to the prophet text in the scroll, like we would, kind of working through, they'd be like, oh no, I need to teach from Daniel 7? Uh, Let me see if Rabbi Brad is available this Sabbath to cover that one. Because this use of the phrase is different than other uses in the Old Testament. First, we find the word like setting it apart. And then look at how this son of man is treated by Yahweh, by God, the ancient of days. This son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom in which all people, nations, and languages might serve him or worship him. And his dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. If you've grown up in church, if you've ever read the New Testament, then you may be going, oh yeah, this sounds familiar. That's totally Jesus. But if you're one of the people of Israel, hearing this text before Jesus is born, this is way more complicated to deal with. This is a person like a son of man, who is sharing glory with the one true God? It's, it's a human and God? In some ways, this is scandalous stuff. Then in Daniel 8, Daniel hears directly from the angel Gabriel that these visions, they're for the end. And Gabriel refers to Daniel as a son of man, similarly to how God speaks to Ezekiel. So in Daniel 7, when Daniel sees one like a son of man, we get a usage that is different than what would happen just one chapter later when the phrase is applied to him, to Daniel. Daniel's telling us this one is different. He's not just a son of man. He's more than that. But I don't really know how else to describe him because he looked like a human. But Because clearly, Daniel had interaction with God's messengers, with angels. And Daniel had some crazy, interesting visions that Pastor Brad gets to explain fully to us when we go through. So Daniel wouldn't refer to something like a son of man unless that was his best description. So as the people of God heard Daniel preached in the synagogues uh, for generations upon generations, and the rabbis you know, put together their commentaries on the text, to help people understand the poetry and the visions, the law, the narrative, the history. 
it became a little more clear that there is one like a son of man who will share divine glory somehow. But that's in the future, so we don't have to figure that out quite yet. So the, the people of God have always been comfortable with mystery, with things that they can't com- ex- completely explain. The people of the Enlightenment have clamored to know all that there is to know with certainty and science. Although God did not reveal this particular mystery for a long time, God did indeed bring some clarity to this one like a son of man. And that brings us back to John. So the synoptics, the similar gospels, they each have a nuanced way of remembering Jesus' use of son of man as a title for himself. And of course, John is again unique in what he recalls about Jesus and this title. So in Matthew, the son of man has authority to forgive sin. The son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the son of man will come in the clouds with his angels. So Jesus used this title to establish his eschatological authority. So remember what Daniel said? Dominion will be given to this one like a son of man. Every time Jesus uses this title for himself, he's tapping into this prophecy. In Mark, there's a lot of overlap between Matthew and Luke and and the uses of the title with a, a very much specific focus on the son of man who will return. And then in Luke, Jesus connects son of man with the suffering servant. Another picture of the Messiah from the prophets, this time from Isaiah. In Luke, Jesus teaches that the various pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament all find their fulfillment in him. The one like a son of man, the suffering servant, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, it's all about Jesus. In Luke, Jesus literally explains this to the two on the road to Emmaus. He shows how all the Old Testament was teaching about him. Every phrase, every word, every usage, all intended to point directly to the person and work of Jesus, our Messiah. God gave us a glimpse of this truth in his sermon two weeks ago, and a glimpse of this title even when he read from Revelation at the end of the sermon. Because Revelation is another work attributed to John. So here in John's gospel account, there's much less overlap with the other three gospels, the synoptics. Uh, This conversation from John 3 doesn't happen anywhere else, likely because that's what Nicodemus intended. It wasn't supposed to be widely known. Ultimately, Nicodemus would continue to follow Jesus from afar and would even serve Jesus at his crucifixion and burial. But for the majority of Jesus' ministry, uh, it's possible that Nicodemus was too afraid of what he might lose if he openly followed this younger rabbi and his, frankly, mind-blowing teachings on Scripture. And I was humbled this week to be reminded that Jack Lucas made a profession of faith in his adult life when he heard John 3 preached. So this conversation with Nicodemus is very pointedly an adult conversation and that Jesus is using metaphors and analogies and figures of speech that are not literal, that require some maturity and life experience to have their full effect. So the, the gospel is for our children and for our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. The way we talk about the gospel with our children may be different than how we talk about the gospel with our friends or our neighbors, though. We get that example from Jesus himself. So in their conversation in John 3, 
Jesus takes the son of man title and again fuses it with the suffering servant. And Nicodemus, he would have felt the whiplash of this usage. The one, like a son of man, will be given Yahweh's dominion, Yahweh's glory, and then the saints will inherit the earth with him. But then here Jesus is saying the son of man must be lifted up like the serpent, hung on a pole and put on display for people. So in the cold open of that episode of The Chosen, you hear Moses hammering that serpent into shape, bending it and affixing it to the pole so that it could be lifted up. The serpents had been biting people and killing them. The disobedient children of Israel were being bitten, they were getting sick, and they were dying. So it's safe to say that the serpents were reviled. They were hated. Yet here is Jesus deftly teaching from three different streams of Scripture all at once. The promised Messiah who would redeem Israel. The one like a son of man who will receive all power from the ancient of days. And the suffering servant who will be mocked and beaten for the healing of the people of God. Verses 13 and 14 lift up the son of man. And verse 18 uses the title son of God. But the usage of these phrases of words shows that Jesus intends to bring them together. The son of man is also the son of God. Now this would have shaken Nicodemus almost as much, if not more so, than the born again stuff. The Messiah is fully human and fully God. And he'll have to be lifted up so that the world might be saved through him? Jesus uses this image of the son of man being lifted up more than just this one time though in the secret conversation with Nicodemus. A common theme in John and the other gospels is that the followers of Jesus didn't always know how to process what he's saying. And neither do we. But in John 8, for example, they, the disciples, did not understand what he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This passage echoes Daniel 7 again, because the Son is given authority by the Ancient of Days, right? Jesus, the Son, is given authority by the Father. And they always work together. The Father's plan is accomplished by Jesus, the Son. So the plan from the beginning that's been inaugurated or started, and that will come to an end. But then again in John 12, Jesus is teaching and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was gonna die. So the crowd, just more than just the disciples, answered him. We've heard from the law that the Christ or Messiah remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, it's a little funny to me how Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. Who is this son of man? Uh, sometimes I imagine what Jesus' face may have been at that moment. 
because he literally just said, it's me. But instead of saying, it's me, y'all, he says, the light is with you. And this ties us back to John 1, when John directly connects Jesus with light. And then right after this section in John 12, Jesus again quotes from Isaiah, bringing together the streams of prophecy that all merge into a river that finds its end in the ocean of Jesus, the true Messiah. So what? If, if you don't ask yourself this question at some point during a sermon, you may not be listening actively enough. Pastor Brad and any who preach here are going to answer this question in their own way during every time we preach from the Bible. We love the word of God, the intricacies, the power, the mysteries, the truth for life. But we're not just digging into the scripture for the sake of study, even though I am a huge nerd. We do it for the sake of our families, our community, and ultimately the world. The son of man must be lifted up. So what? So Jesus, the son of man, is fully God and fully human. And the son of man title brings these things together even more than the title son of God. In fact, the title Son of God was already in common Greek and Roman usage at that time. And they used it to refer to all sorts of demigods uh, like Hercules and even the ruler and Caesar himself. So Jesus, using the phrase Son of God for himself, was just as much him reclaiming that title from its misuse. But it also may be why he preferred Son of Man and used it twice as much. It, it had strong Old Testament ties, but it wasn't encumbered by the Roman baggage of son of God, which people may have thought he was just positioning himself as another military ruler if he used that phrase all the time. John's gospel continually points to Jesus' divinity. And this title from Daniel 7 points to a divine figure who shares in the glory of Yahweh, yet is a human. But listen, Jesus is not a human who worked really hard to be really good, and then God decided to share glory with him. Jesus is not God merely wrapped in a human suit. Do you remember the Vincent D'Onofrio character from Men in Black? This is another deep cut. The first Men in Black movie, Vincent D'Onofrio's character is a bug who's wearing human skin, and he's like want, you know, walking all weird and talking, nobody bats an eye, but like he's walking funny and talking funny. It's obviously not a human. It's a bug in a human suit. Jesus is not God in human skin trying to pull it off. Jesus was not an all-powerful God merely clothed in human likeness. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus is God, and he was fully, fully in human form. That's the point that Daniel and John and Jesus himself are all making. Jesus is God and human completely. So one reason Jesus uses the Son of Man title may be to remind us that he really is like us. As he progressively did miracles, like raising someone from death to life, folks may have struggled with that. This person's doing things that humans don't do. And then when he's resurrected, again, that's not something a human can do, but Jesus and all of Scripture tells us that he is fully God 
and fully human. He slept. He ate. He cried. He got angry. He sang. And I, I hope he laughed the way that he's portrayed by Jonathan Rumi on The Chosen. I mean, he's a great actor, but I bet Jesus was probably even more kind and patient and funny. He was perfectly fully human. But so what? Only the son of man can do what needed to be done. Only the one like a son of man shares glory with the father, the ancient of days. Only Jesus is worthy of our deepest affections because only he could do what needed to be done to reconcile you to our father. Revelation 5 also tells us that only Jesus can open the scroll to complete God's plan for the universe. So that's what we sing when we sing, is he worthy? We're reminding ourselves that yes, Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll to accomplish God's plan. Jesus was the only one who could live a sinless life. He is the only one who could die in your place. He's the only one who's been resurrected. And not just resuscitated, but given an incorruptible human body as a guarantee of what's to come for all of us who follow him. God told Moses to put a bronze serpent on the pole, not to raise up the Ten Commandments, not to raise up a model of Mount Zion, but only the serpent. Looking at that serpent was the only thing that would bring healing. The son of man must be lifted up. Only he can bring healing in every sense of the word. Jesus shows us how to live, how to die, and how we will live forever. Jim Maycock and Jack Lucas followed Jesus and loved so many people like Jesus would. And they died humbly, trusting only Jesus. And we believe that they are now with God until the final resurrection. But only Jesus can promise this and keep that promise. Following Jesus can bring healing to our relationships with one another. Believing in Jesus heals our relationship with God the Father. And suffering with Jesus leads us to share in his life even eternal life, but only Jesus can do that. There is no one like him. He is the one like a son of man who's been given all authority and yet he humbled himself to death in your place for your sin because Jesus, God himself, loves you. So what? So let the Son of Man set the example and live his example through you. Look to Jesus and live, both now and forever. Look at Jesus and let his death in your place heal you. And look at Jesus' example of what it means to be truly, fully human. The Son of Man humbled himself and was lifted up. The Son of Man humbled himself to death and was given the name above every name. The Son of Man took up his cross and he bore it to its destination. 
So humble yourself so that God may lift up your head. Humble yourself even to the point of death if God should call you to that. Because as Jesus proved for those who follow him, death is not the end. So take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because the destination is not merely death. The final destination that the one like a son of man inherits on behalf of all the saints of God in Daniel 7 is the new creation in which we'll live eternally, just like Jesus said to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. Jesus is the son of man and son of God, the only one. This great mystery from Daniel 7 Who is the son of man? It's revealed in Jesus. He did what only he could do, providing the atonement for our sin and for all our sins so that we could be rightly related to the creator again as it was in the beginning. So let him live through you now in the power of the Holy Spirit so that many might see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for your word. And even though it contains things that are difficult, contains things that are mysterious in some ways, you've made all the things necessary for us so clear. So we thank you for Jesus who so clearly loves us, who taught us how to live, who showed us how to live and how to die, and whose death in our place makes all things right between us and you and us and one another. Pray that you be glorified as we seek to exalt Jesus because he's the only one who's worthy. May the Son of Man be lifted up when we gather together as a church and when we're scattered. May we be established in these true things. And would you stir our hearts to follow you wherever you would lead and engage the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.